Well, as you know, the theme of our conference today is on manhood and particularly on the manhood of Jesus Christ. And as you very well know, the society around us has many voices on the topic of manhood. And in many ways, in most ways, our culture seeks to emasculate men. And the kind of voices coming from the culture regarding manhood are nothing less than voices from the pit of hell. God has created men to be a certain kind of person. He has a design for men, and that is certainly being obscured by the culture today. At the same time, there are a lot of opposing voices, and many of those voices which recognize the problems of our culture as it relates to manhood simply try to do the exact opposite of what the culture dictates, and so manhood is simply defined in terms of this tug-of-war between the majority in the culture and an uprising revolt against that. But we, of course, must look to the Word as our singular definition of manhood, and we are here this morning to do that, to look at Jesus Christ, who is the archetype of manhood, to look at his character as he lived and modeled life for us, and as we thought about who could address that topic, we thought about H.B. Charles. We're delighted to have him here with us this morning. He's going to be preaching as well from this pulpit on the Lord's Day tomorrow. H.B. is pastor-teacher at Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. He has served there since 2008. Prior to that, he served as pastor of Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church here in Los Angeles for 18 years. So he comes to us with significant pastoral ministry, and yet he looks so young, and he is. And it, this is amazing. He actually began as pastor there at Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church here in L.A. at the age of 17. He was still in high school. His father, H.B. Sr., had pastored that church for many years. H.B. Jr. had grown up under that influence. And so when his father passed and the church began a search for replacement, they looked and they just kept coming back to H.B. Sr.'s son. And so at the age of 17, H.B. Jr. stepped into that role. And from a very early age, H.B. HB Jr. has had a deep respect for the ministry of the Word, and that is going to come out this morning. And he is solidly committed to expository preaching, which makes him such a wonderful friend to us. He is the author of several books on pastoral ministry and on preaching. He is a uh, regular conference speaker, and he also has a podcast called The On Preaching podcast. And in addition to all of that, he has he is married, and I think 25 years, is that right? 25 years. And he has three children, one son and two daughters. And during our Q&A time, I'm going to ask him a little bit more about his background because it's so fascinating. But he's going to come now to open the word for us. Please join me in welcoming HB to the pulpit to minister God's word. Please come.
Good morning, brothers. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you today in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a joy, privilege, and honor it is for me to just be with you this morning and have the opportunity to spend this day with you and to have been asked to open up God's word with you today. I am uh, slightly this morning as I thank the brother for the kind words of um, introduction, a little overwhelmed um, because um, this pastor, this pulpit, and this congregation is one of the key factors for any of those things that he mentioned that would be true of me. I um, trusted Christ as a boy and was called to preach as a boy. He is right. I, uh, I um, was nurtured in a church not only by my father, but by a community of strong men who I wanted to be like uh, in that local church in Los Angeles. And... Um, I uh, was called after my father's death to pastor that church at the age of 17. I don't recommend that. <laughs> That's just my testimony. I know he mentioned that I would be asked about that a little later, but I would tell you um, before we turn to the word that not long after pastoring that church, uh, a theological crisis arose in that congregation, and God providentially directed me to the writings of Pastor MacArthur. And um, I uh, was reading Dr. MacArthur, listening to Dr. MacArthur, and um, didn't know for a couple of years that... um, this church was just about two miles from where my older sister lived. <laughs> um, and uh, when I found out that uh, this church was here, as I was shepherding my own congregation on Sunday mornings, uh, I was visiting here on Sunday nights, sitting in the back and here as often as I could, uh, learning the Word of God, uh, having my convictions shaped. Uh, actually, one of the first uh, real dates I had with my wife, Crystal, I brought her here on the Sunday night <laughs> to hear uh, Pastor MacArthur. And uh, I, I've been richly blessed by the ministry of this church, and I'm grateful to be here with you today. Looking forward to meeting with you and fellowshipping with you over the course of the day. And I want to just get right down to business. In the introductory remarks, our brother was absolutely right. There's much confusion about what it means to be a man. And for us to get a proper understanding requires that we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning... If you don't mind, I don't want to talk about you. I just want to talk about Jesus from two passages 
in our two sessions out of the book of Colossians. I want us to consider this first hour the supremacy of Christ from Colossians chapter 1, and then I would consider with you the sufficiency of Christ from Colossians chapter 2. Let me pray first, and then we'll hear the reading of God's Word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, bless you, and praise you for the gift of this day. Your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. Above all, we praise you today for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. And in his name, we ask now that you would fix our hearts, focus our minds, forgive our sins and our sinfulness, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, and feed us richly today by the truth and wisdom of your holy word. I ask, Lord, that you would help us today to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and evil speaking, so that as newborn infants we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. I'm asking as well, Father, that you would grant me physical strength and spiritual energy today to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And may Christ alone be exalted as the word is explained today, we pray to your glory. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all Things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. The supremacy of Christ. I grew up here in Los Angeles. And I remember as a boy, there was a local church that had an 
annual event that was just 24 hours of preaching. And me and our friends, my friends from our church would, would try to do all 24 hours. Uh, we did that for many years. Sometime later, I had the privilege of ministering at that church, ministering during that meeting. That great facility in the heart of the city was literally flattened by the 1994 Northridge earthquake. Insurance helped them purchase new property and plan a new building. But somehow in the building process as it began, they abruptly ended. Soil test revealed some problems that prevented them from laying the foundation for the church. There was problems in the soil so that the foundation was not built and the building was delayed. It was delayed for many, many, many years. They finally was able to get the building up, but the congregation was never the same. In the real sense, brothers, that story is a parable of the Christian life. The stability of the foundation always determines the strength of the structure. The stability of the foundation determines the strength of the building. And so in a real sense, we have come this morning asking the question, how should we live as men? How should we build our lives as men? How should we build our families as men? This is the all-important question of Christian ethics. There are many in our world who have no answer to these big questions of life. And there are many who have wrong answers to these big questions about life. Only the word of God and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ can properly answer this question. How then should we live as men? But I warn, brothers, we must not be so quick to erect the building of manhood that we fail to check the soil to ensure we are building on the right foundation. Belief shapes behavior. Truth governs life. Theology determines ethics. And in this passage, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, we are reminded that Christ himself is the foundation of Christian ethics. You'll never properly be able to answer the question, how should I live until you have first got the right answer to this question, who is Jesus? It is his life that shapes how we live. 
more specifically, it is his life, his death, and his resurrection that should shape how we live. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 provide the soil tests that reveal if our foundation is strong and stable and secure. At the time Paul was under house arrest in Rome, while there, he received a visit from a man named Epaphras, who gave him a report about the church at Colossae. Epaphras reported to him their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. And Paul was convinced by what he heard that this church in Colossae was made up of genuine Christians. He thanks God for them in verses 3 through 8 of this chapter. Epaphras' report also contained disturbing news. False teachers had infiltrated this young church with lies they were teaching concerning how the church should think and live. These false teachers proclaimed a Christ who was prominent but not preeminent. They claimed that Jesus was just one of many angelic emanations. And errors about the person of Christ opened the door to confusion about the gospel, the church, and the Christian life. Various isms infiltrated the church. And the worst part of this so-called Colossian heresy is that none of these errors were presented to rival Christ, but all of them were presented alongside of Christ as if Christ is not enough. And so Paul wrote this letter back to the church at Colossae to defend the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. The epistle of the, to the Colossians is polemical. But yet here, as Paul gets to the main body of the letter, he begins with a declaration of truth, not a refutation of error. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is one of the key Christological statements in the New Testament. It is a critical an essential and foundational statement about who Jesus is. This lofty language contains rich theology, but scholars tell us that this may have actually been a hymn that the ancient church would sing in worship. But if this text does not derive from worship, brothers, it most definitely should result in worship. And our worship of Christ should overflow in our witness for Christ in the world that we live in. Paul declares and defends the foundational truth of the Christian life. 
that this essential truth is to shape everything else in our lives. It is the proper understanding of Christianity. And that understanding is simply this. Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. And it is for this reason that we should look to him alone for answers to the question of how we should live. That's my introduction. The rest of the way here, I just want to walk you through the text and brag on Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 teaches two essential facts about the supremacy of Christ. But you know, on one hand, the supremacy of Christ over creation. The supremacy of Christ over creation. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15 begins with this great declaration. He is the image of the invisible God. This opening clause makes two affirmations. First is a statement about God. God is invisible. John 4, 24 says, God is spirit. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 calls God the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. In the Old Testament, God occasionally shows up in what is called a theophany. These are unique and temporary experiences of the greatness of God, but they never reveal God's essential nature. God is the invisible God. But secondly, this clause declares that Christ is the image of that invisible God. Image translates the term for icon, the representation or manifestation of a thing. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, commands, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Don't shape anything, carve anything, erect anything in the so-called image of God. Because no image sinful man creates can fully or faithfully represent God. Yet, Genesis tells us that man was made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Being created in the image of God, we are rational beings with intellect, emotion, and volition. But we do not bear God's image Essentially, we do not share the 
what is called the incommunicable attributes of God. Something we just need to remind ourselves of regularly. God is God and we are not. There is a good little beatitude you need to become friends with. Blessed is the man who recognizes there is only one God and stops applying for the position. Only God is God. We do not bear God's image essentially, and we do not bear God's image morally. God is holy, and we are not. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet this text declares that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus does, in fact, bear God's image essentially and morally. Jesus represents God. John 1, 18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That final clause in John 1.18 translates the word for exegesis, the preaching term that speaks of bringing out of the text what's in the text. And in a real sense, John declares that Jesus is the exegesis of God. If, if you want to see God, look at Jesus. To know God, know Jesus. To trust God, trust in Jesus. Hebrews 1, 3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus represents God. Jesus manifests God. Remember in John 14, Jesus is bracing the disciples in the upper room for his departure, that he is going away And he keeps making them promises concerning the Father. And finally, Philip says, you you keep talking about the Father, the Father, the Father. Show us the Father. And that will be sufficient for us. Remember what Jesus said? John 14, verses 8 and 9. Have you been so long with me, Philip, and you don't know me? How dare you ask a question? You're asking an elementary question on graduation day. Have you been with me this long and do not know who I am? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. People who knew my dad. Say, I remind them of him, that I look like him, that I talk like him, that I carry myself like him. But I could never say that if you've seen me, you essentially have met my father. 
Jesus does not merely resemble God the Father. Jesus is God in the flesh. So verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to teach that Jesus is God's first creation. That is wrong. For Paul to be teaching that here would be for him to, in fact, agree with the false teachers he is correcting here and to violate the point of this text. Firstborn here is not first in order, series, or process. In that sense, Cain is the firstborn in creation. But firstborn here refers to rank. The firstborn son had the birthright. Exodus chapter 4, 22 calls Israel my firstborn son. That is a statement of its rank and status before God. Psalm 89 verse 27 says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Again, a statement of rank. And when Paul calls Jesus here the firstborn of all creation, he is not saying that Jesus is the first thing created. He is saying that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. the creator of the world. Verse 16 describes Jesus' relationship to creation in three ways. He first says that Jesus is the source of creation. For by him, all things were created. For by him, all things were created. Who created the world? Paul says, everything in the created world bears the same stamp made by Jesus. Christ is the originator of all things. He is the architect of all things. He is the builder of all things. Notice how Paul fleshes this out in the text. He says that Christ is God who created the physical world. This is the meaning of the phrases in verse 16, on earth and visible. Robert Gromacki commented here, people should praise him when they view the minute complexities of life through a microscope or the vastness of the universe through a telescope. Glory should be attributed to him, not to a series of angelic emanations, to an impersonal mother nature, or to an atheistic principle of evolution. Jesus is the source of everything in everything that is visible on the earth. But not only did Christ create the physical world, Christ created the spiritual world. 
This is the meaning of in heaven and invisible. In fact, Paul gives a list of spirit beings, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. No reason to try to wrestle with the distinction of these terms. These are overlapping terms here to refer to the spirit beings in the unseen world. And he lists them out to say Christ created them all. False teachers in Colossae claimed that Jesus was an emanation derived from generations of angels. Paul here says, what are you talking about? Christ Jesus is the one who created the angels. Even fallen angels aligned with Satan are under Christ's sovereign authority. Jesus is the source of creation. And then he says that Jesus is the agent of creation. All things were created through him. Not just by him, but through him. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. As long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he has also created the world. Jesus is the source of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. And Jesus is the goal of creation. All things were created through him. Then Paul says, and for him. The created world exists for Christ's pleasure, for Christ's purpose, for Christ's praise. We look around the world around us and we ask, prone to ask, what is the world coming to? But in As Christians, we know the answer to that question. What is the world coming to? Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 answers that question practically, powerfully, and profoundly. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and has given him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the creator of the world. Jesus is also the sustainer of the world. He is the sustainer of the world. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things. Christ predates and antedates creation. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is before all things. John chapter 8, there is a debate with unbelieving Jews Jesus has, and Jesus and these unbelievers are, <laughs> are both appealing to Abraham. And these unbelievers, remember, John, they get offended that Jesus would appeal to Abraham. You're not, you're not even 50 years old and Abraham has been dead for centuries. How dare you talk about Abraham as if you know Abraham? You remember what Jesus said? Truly I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He is before all things. Look at verse 17. And he is the one who holds all things together. I remember my junior high school in Inglewood, California. My first year in junior high school, I remember my favorite teacher that first year was a science teacher. He was just a kind man. I thought highly of him. But it was in his class that I was first confronted with the claims of evolution. And I was shocked that day. It's the first time I had been in a class where a teacher denied the existence of God. I was shocked. And I, I remember a young girl in my class who raised her hand and challenged the teacher. I just was shocked at this girl's boldness to raise her hand and quote back to that teacher Genesis 1 and 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I remember he, he shut her down with a lot of scientific language. Mumbo jumbo. I remember that day. And I wish I would have had the courage to take a stand that day the way that young sister did in that class. 
I wouldn't have been able to debate all of the terminology that he said. If I, if I had have gone back, though, and said something, I just would have wanted to put on record, science does not have all the answers. There are so many answers that science does not have. In fact, the best of scientists cannot fully, rightly, accurately answer what holds the universe together. But we know the answer. It is in Christ that all things are held together. He is the beginning of all things, and in him all things hold together. What a comfort this is to my soul this morning, and I hope that you are comforted and strengthened and built up by this truth, friends. Jesus Christ holds all things together. The Lord did not create the world and then leave it to run on its own devices. He didn't merely create the world and wind it up like a clock and then leave it to operate individually and independently. Jesus, who is the creator of the world, is also the sustainer of the world. Why is the world a cosmos and not a chaos? Because Jesus is holding everything together. But why does the earth remain close enough to the sun that we don't freeze and far enough that we don't burn? Because Jesus is holding all things together. Why does the sun keep rising in the east and setting in the west? Because Jesus holds all things together. Why does winter, spring, summer, and fall continue to come in their due course? Because Jesus holds all things together. Why do the flowers keep budding, blooming, fading, and falling? It's because Jesus holds all things together. That's true whether you acknowledge it or not. And what is true of the cosmic world is also true of your private world. Whether you acknowledge it or not, you are only here today because Christ, the sustainer of all things, has held your little world together. (laughs) I get nervous when folks start saying, you know, uh, he started pastoral when he was 17. Uh, One of the things I think about is the other part of the story folk don't know. I I started pastoring that church uh, when I was 17, and they tried to put me out by the time I was 21. <laughs> they took me to court and tried to put me out. Their final straw, I'm telling you, their final straw is when I said, you, you know, you can't teach Bible studies if you don't come to Bible study. And I just remember those difficult days as a young man. be in those deacons meetings. And they would beat me up real good. 
I think they were really just giving me the whippings they couldn't give my daddy, you know. <laughs> and and I, I would just, I would just, I just, I would feel like my, my world was falling apart. My little apartment was off of Venice Boulevard. I was a little more than 10 minutes or so from the beach. And each night before I go home, I would just drive out to the beach and walk the, walk the beach for an hour or so. And I would pause each night. I'm going to be honest with you. I was so burdened and brokenhearted. It was just hard to pray. I didn't know what to pray. But I would stand there, watch the tide come in and go out, come in and go out. And then I could go home and go to sleep and sleep well, reminded that no matter how things look or felt in my crumbling, seemingly crumbling world, the Lord was still holding all things together. You need to know that, brother. For the burdens that you are facing in your life, the challenges that you are experiencing in your family, the difficulties you, you are struggling with in direction for your, your education, your career. Just confusion about which way my life should go. If God is your father, if Jesus Christ is your savior and Lord, if the Holy Spirit is your help, guide, and strength, I declare for him, you are not in that thing by yourself. The Lord is holding all things together. And so we see on one hand the supremacy of Christ over creation. Then I would like you to see next with me in verses 18 through 20, the supremacy of Christ over the church. Verses 15 through 17 declare the supremacy of Christ over creation. Verses 18 through 20 declare the supremacy of Christ over the church. Verse 18 describes three titles to Christ. Let's linger over those for just a moment. Begins by saying, he is the head of the body, the church. It is profound that the New Testament does not try to define the church as much as it describes the church with word pictures. Here is the primary word picture, the primary metaphor for the church, a body. Meaning, first, the church is a living organism, not a dead organization. 
And the metaphor is used throughout the New Testament to emphasize the mutual dependence of the members of the body. We need one another, brothers. But here, Paul does not refer to the church as a body to emphasize our mutual dependence upon one another. He mentions the church as a body to remind us and to emphasize the total dependency the body has on its head. Anything without a head is dead. Anything with more than one head is a monster. Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. Secondly, the text again says he is the beginning. Revelation twenty two thirteen says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And thirdly, the text says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. If you're keeping score, this is the second time Paul calls Christ in this text the firstborn. Verse 15 calls him the firstborn of all creation. Now verse 18 calls him the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was not, again, the first person raised from the dead. He himself raised three people from the dead during his ministry. Those persons he raised from the dead died again and remained dead. But in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Jesus declares, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. Notice verse 18, how it ends. After these titles, we see the purpose of these titles. That in everything he might be preeminent. term is only used here. It means Jesus is the supreme one who has first place, full control, and final authority over everything. He is to have first place in creation, first place in the church, and yes, brother, first place in your life. Preston wrote, for everywhere he is first, above first, in the church first, for he is the head, and in the resurrection first. Why is Christ to be preeminent? Why is he to have the supreme place? Why is he to be honored as supreme? Two reasons. 
Paul first notes the incarnation of Christ. During their wilderness wanderings, the children of Israel dwelt in tents. These tents were extended stay but temporary lodging as they made their way to the promised land of Canaan. Solomon would later erect a temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, he prays, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yet verse 19 says, for in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is a statement about the Father and Christ. Paul says the Father chose to dwell in the Son. John 14, chapter 1, verse 14 says it this way, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It pleased the Father to dwell in Christ. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. The father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Please, the father, that all the fullness of God would dwell in Christ. We don't need the kind of glory as they had in the Old Testament. We have Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that we'll look at God willing the next hour, says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we'll look next hour at the sufficiency of Christ. But here, Paul declares that the supremacy of Christ fuels the sufficiency of Christ. Because Christ is who he is. Nothing is lacking from our salvation. Jesus is everything that we need. So after pointing to the incarnation of Christ, he then points to the atonement of Christ. Verse 20 brings up the subject of reconciliation. Reconciliation assumes a relationship has been broken, ruptured, or dislocated. This is the human predicament. This is our problem, men. Sin has severed our relationship with God. It has separated us from God. And the first man and woman sinned. They declared war against God. God. It was more than just messing up or making a mistake. It was deliberate rebellion. It was mutiny against the government of God. It was treason against the authority of God. And yet God sought Adam and Eve, provided a covering for their sins. And this has been God's loving disposition toward rebellious sinners. 
God desires to be reconciled to sinners. And God has provided the means of that reconciliation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. True manhood begins by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ who paid the price so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be reconciled to God. Note the scope of this divine reconciliation. To reconcile to himself all things. Would you lay your eyes on the text again and just note that the repeated use of this word all throughout this passage. Verse 15 calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16 says, by him all things were created. Verse 17 says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Verse 18 says that in everything or all things he might be preeminent. Verse 19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now we are told through him, he's working to reconcile all things to himself. Sinners are beneficiaries of the reconciling work of God in Christ. So is all creation. This doesn't mean that unrepentant sinners or fallen angels will enjoy eternal glory. But all things will ultimately be consummated according to God's good pleasure through Christ. How is this possible? Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. the only place this particular phrase is used in the New Testament, the blood of his cross. Paul says much about the blood of Christ. He says much about the cross of Christ. Here Paul mentions both to emphasize the power of the atonement for sins, the blood of Jesus accomplished at the cross. We look to Jesus for salvation, for sanctification, for direction for life. Because he is God who became one of us, who lived the righteous life that we could never live, fully pleasing to God, who died at the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins. And God raised him from the dead that we might be declared righteous in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin 
for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this Christ is everything we need for life and godliness. We need not look to entertainers, businessmen, philosophers, politicians, podcasters for how we should live. Colossians 3, 11 says, Christ is all and in all. The author Lloyd C. Douglas wrote of living in a boarding house during his college days. There was a retired and sickly older music teacher who resided on the first floor. They became friends. They had a daily ritual. Before Douglas would leave the house for the day, he would stop in to speak to this old retired music teacher. He would open the man's door and ask the old man, what's the good news today? The old man would pick up his tuning fork and tap it on his wheelchair and say, young man, the good news today is what you hear is middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It's middle C today. It'll be middle C a thousand years from now. That tenor who lives upstairs sings flat. And the piano down the hall is out of tune. But the good news is, this is and remains middle C. In a greater, deeper, higher way. The Lord Jesus Christ is our sovereign, supreme, and sufficient middle C. Look to him, brothers, for everything, for life and godliness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time together today. We thank you for your living word, its truth, its wisdom, and its authority. And We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We need no other prophets to reveal your will. We need no other priests to provide access to you. We need no other king to advance your agenda on the earth. We need no other standard 
by which to shape, govern, and direct our lives. Help us, I pray, to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. To not lean on our own understanding. To acknowledge him in all of our ways. As you direct our path, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.